Before I get started, I just want to thank Bill Real for even giving me a chance to guest host a podcast. It's really an honor. I admire Bill so much. I think he's done such great work. Um, and I've really appreciated all of his podcasts over the years. Uh, really come to rely on him. So thanks, Bill. I want to begin today's podcast by telling a story. It's a parable that's passed down in the Buddhist tradition. And it's about a woman named Kisa Gotami who had an only son. And this son died. And in her grief, she carried this dead child to all her neighbors throughout the village, asking them for medicine, hoping to heal the boy. And everyone could see that the boy was dead. And they all thought that she had lost her senses. Finally, Kisa met a man who was a little bit more compassionate to her. And he said to her, I can't give you any medicine, but I know a physician who can. And Kisa fell to her knees and said, please, sir, tell me who this physician is. Who can heal my son? And the man said, the physician is Sakyamuni, the Buddha. So Kisa took her son and went to the Buddha's house and knelt down before the Buddha's house and cried, please, Lord Master, please give me the medicine that will cure my boy. And the Buddha came out of his house, and he looked at Kisa, and he looked at the dead son, and he said, I want a handful of mustard seed. And, and Kisa said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll get you the mustard seed, absolutely. And then the Buddha said, but the mustard seed must be taken from a house where no one has lost a child, or a husband, or a wife, a father, or a mother, or even a friend. Those were the conditions the Buddha gave Kisa. So Kisa went back to the village, and she went house to house. And the people of the village had great pity on her. And they said, here, here's mustard seed, take it. But when she asked, did a son or a daughter or a father or a mother die in your family? They, of course, all answered her, yes. There was not a single house in the village that had been spared the deep grief associated with the death of a loved one. And so for Kisa... There was no mustard seed to be found in the village that would meet the conditions laid down by the Buddha. Well, this made Kisa even more despondent than she was originally. And so she just sat down on the roadside and just sat there all the day long. And then the, the sun went down and Kisa just sat there. And night came and darkness replaced the light of the sun. And Kisa just sat on the roadside, depressed, inconsolable. But then the people of the village started to do what they did every night, which was light candles and lamps and torches. And slowly the village began to glow a little bit. And then they began to play the music that they would play every night. And they would come out of their houses and speak with each other about the happenings of that day. Nothing all that important. Just a word or two about what had happened, where they had succeeded, where they had failed. Small things, mundane things. And then it kind of hit Kisa. This thought, how selfish I am in my own grief. Death has come to all. And as she watched the villagers from afar, engulfed in the light of their candles and their lamps, surrounded by loved ones, full of music and laughter, she realized something else. Maybe in this valley of death, there is a path that leads to immortality. It was then, and only then, that Kisa was able to stand up and pick up the dead corpse of her son, and bury him, and rejoin the village. Sometimes as Mormons, I think we're a lot like Kisa. Things aren't going right with our religion, with our church. There are contradictions. There are bad policies. The history of our church is not as they told me it was. Joseph Smith is a little more complicated than we thought. These scriptures we have sometimes don't seem to make a lot of sense. Maybe they're not even historical. 
Why do we feel entitled as Mormons to be spared disillusionment or frustration or disappointment with the things that we thought we understood, with the things that we thought we were taught with our leaders? Why do we feel so exceptional? If we as Mormons went house to house in the global village <laughs> to all the participants, all the religious participants, and asked for a handful of mustard seed, I think most of the, the houses in the global village would be willing to give us a handful of mustard seed. But if we added the condition that it come only from a house that had experienced no disillusionment, no frustration, no disappointment, no horrible realization that, gosh, maybe what I had been taught is, is not exactly what it has professed to be. If we add that condition, then, then we're going to realize like Kisa did that there's no house in the global village that can offer us a handful of mustard seed. This disappointment and this frustration and this realization that things are not quite as we thought they were and life is more complicated than maybe we were taught. This is a universal experience. And it's not just within a religious context. It's experienced in marriages. It's experienced within your career choices. It's something we feel any time we grow from one who has mere abstract learning to one who has experience. And so, like Kisa, we now have a choice. We can sit on the side of the road and we can groan that there's no cure. Or we can try to understand the experience and try to figure out which way the experience is pointing us. Where does the experience lead us? So this is what I hope this podcast will be about. I hope it will help you along your path, help you process your experiences. I hope it will help you get up from the roadside and bury the corpse of your son and rejoin the village with richer and deeper understanding. That's my goal anyways. Maybe that's too high-minded. I don't know. But that's the goal. So to begin, I want to take a look at two works written by two people that could not be more different. The first is Elder Wilford Anderson of the 70. And the second is Eckhart Tolle, who's a New Age spiritualist, kind of a, a Euro hippie, if you will. Now, as you listen to these two works, and as you as you think about them, keep in mind Kisa and her experience. At the beginning of the story, Kisa is an innocent, inexperienced young mother with a young child. This young child dies unexpectedly. She goes into shock probably denial. She seeks for a cure, but really what she's seeking is to go back in time, to undo what had happened. And she thinks the physician is offering her a cure. She thinks the physician can bring her son back to life. The physician, however, sends her to find something that cannot be found and gives her condition that cannot be met. And in the process, ends up giving Kisa what she really needs, which is a deeper understanding of her experience. And it's only at that point that Kisa is able to rejoin the village. And as she rejoins the village, she rejoins as someone with a, with a depth that she didn't have before. So again, the first clip is by Wilfred Anderson of the 70. And this talk was given in April conference 2015. Brothers and sisters, thank you for that beautiful music. Years ago, I listened to a radio interview of a young doctor who worked in the hospital on, a, on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona. He told of an experience he had one night 
when an old Native American man with long braided hair came into the emergency room. The young doctor took his clipboard, approached the man, and said, How can I help you? The old man looked straight ahead and said nothing. The doctor, feeling somewhat impatient, tried again. I cannot help you if you don't speak to me, he said. Tell me why you've come to the hospital. The old man looked at him and said, Do you dance? As the young doctor pondered the strange question, it occurred to him that perhaps his patient was a tribal medicine man who, according to ancient tribal customs, sought to heal the sick through song and dance rather than through prescribing medication. No, said the doctor, I don't dance. Do you dance? The old man nodded yes. Then the doctor asked, could you teach me to dance? The old man's response has for many years caused me much reflection. I can teach you to dance, he said, but you have to hear the music. Sometimes in our homes we successfully teach the dance steps, but are not as successful in helping our family members to hear the music. And as the old medicine man well knew, it is hard to dance without music. Dancing without music is awkward and unfulfilling, even embarrassing. Have you ever tried it? (laughs) In Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord taught Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. We learn the dance steps with our minds, but we hear the music with our hearts. Again, that was Wilfred Anderson, April 2015 conference. I really love this talk. It's also a very atypical LDS conference talk. He gives us an entirely new metaphor to think about the gospel, the spirit. He starts, uh, he broaches the idea of a real distinction between mind and heart or mind and spirit. Usually we talk about spirit and body. There's a difference between your spirit in your body, but often in LDS terms, we link mind and spirit kind of together. The mind is your spirit, or, 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 the, or the spirit kind of works through your mind. And I think that's still true on one level, anyways. But Wilfred, but Wilfred Anderson makes this um, uh, really clear distinction between your mind and your heart, and he, he does sort of confuse things because he goes back and he talks about this section in DNC where. The Lord will tell you in your mind and your heart. But let's not get too hung up on that. Let, let's run with what I think he's really trying to say, which is there's a way to think about mind and there's a way to think about inner spirit. And those things are are distinct and different. And he also introduces this third element, the music, and how the music provides context for all the mundane things that we do day in and day out. And if you can't hear the music with your heart as distinguished from your mind, then all these things that you're doing don't make a lot of sense. You're not dancing, if you will. You're just sort of shuffling around. You're just sort of moving around aimlessly. That's a fundamentally different message than the vast majority of LDS conference talks. I think that's fair to say. Certainly uh, a very different message from the vast majority of Sunday school lessons. What Wilfred Anderson is doing with his talk is not unlike what the lone villager is doing for Kisa when he points her towards the Buddha, towards the physician. All the other villagers, 
looked at Kisa holding her dead son, and they were all, all were thinking, Hey, Kisa, your son's dead. You need to bury him. There is no cure. Your son will not come back to life. And, and they were right. I mean, that's true. Her son was dead. He was not going to come back to life. I mean, I, I, you know, I guess there's a, you know, I guess if this were happening during the time of the Gospels and Jesus were around, I guess, you know, theoretically there's a way. But, but I think it's also safe to say that that is not the experience of most of us on, on earth. The, the vast, vast majority of most of us on earth, when someone, when we witness or see a dead body, we conclude rightfully that that body's done, that that soul is gone, and, and that person's dead. It's time to bury him. We, we don't think it's comforting to the, to the grieving relative or the grieving wife or mother to say, Hey, there's a, you know, there's a chance, you know, there's still hope. I'm not, he's not totally dead. He's just partially dead, you know, like in the princess bride. So we can't really begrudge the other, the other villagers. We can't say, Oh, you, you heartless bastards. I mean, have a little pity on this woman. But for some reason, there's this one villager who says, you know, go to the, go to the, this physician. He'll have, he may have a cure for you. We can speculate on what was going on in the villager's head, but. I suspect the villager knew that that the Buddha was going to cure her in a different way. So even though you know Wilfred Anderson's talk is is fundamentally different in a new paradigm. I mean, we we can't begrudge all the foundational talks that we've heard in conference, all the foundational Sunday school lessons that we've heard, all the foundational building blocks that we've been given. But sometimes we need the Wilfred Andersons of the world to say, "Let's look at this a little bit differently. Go see this physician." There may be a different way of looking at the problem that you're facing that may be helpful. And I'm not going to slap you in the face and tell you you just got to face facts. And, you know, instead, I'm going to work with your shock and I'm going to work with your despair. And I'm going to work with where you are and just point you towards this physician. And in Wilford Anderson's case, he didn't point us towards a physician. But he, but he told us life should be more of a dance and that we should be dancing to a beautiful music rather than just going through, uh, our, our lists of things to do and rather than just indulging every, uh, feeling of anxiety that we have that we're not doing enough. You know, he, he turns the whole pray, read your scriptures, keep the commandments on its head. And he says, just, just think about this differently. Think of life as a dance and try to hear the music and hear the music with your heart. And oh, by the way, your heart and your spirit is a little bit different than all the things that are going on inside your head. And maybe you, if you can separate those two things and really listen more with your heart, then your life can be more like a dance. That's pretty powerful. I want to play a second clip for you uh, from a spiritual teacher, kind of a new age guy. Uh, his name is Eckhart Tolle. He's written a current bestseller called The Power of Now. Anyways, this clip is uh, taken from a seminar that he gave uh, about spirituality. And he talks more in-depthly about this distinction that Elder Anderson um, began to make between the mind and the heart. And I need to set this up just a little bit because we're going to enter um, his seminar kind of in the middle of it. And this, this quote is going to feel out of context a little bit. So let me give you a little bit of background of, of what his paradigm is. Um, Eckhart draws heavily from Eastern thought, from, from Buddhism, from Taoism, 
Um, and his, his basic paradigm is that, uh, within each of us, there's an inner body, an inner spirit, if you will. Very similar to what I think Wilfred Anderson was trying to teach us. And, and like Elder Anderson, Eckhart Tolle distinguishes this inner body from our mind. And Eckhart Tolle really, in his writings and in his work, he spends a lot of time discussing the mind. He goes really, really goes much deeper than Wilfred Anderson. And I suggest to anyone who's interested that, that you pick up uh, any of his books. I would recommend a book called The Power of Now, which, you know, admittedly is kind of a new agey title, but it really is excellent. It's well worth the read. But at a really high level and really not doing justice to Eckhart Tolle's work, um, he views the mind as as a distinct analytical tool, a tool with with uh, almost with a life of its own, a tool that we can use, but also a tool that kind of lives on its own and generates its own energy and its own thoughts, and and that has massive implications about how we deal with the mind and how we deal with thought, and for us LDS, it has massive implications about how we understand the Spirit and the Holy Ghost and and promptings from the Spirit, which, frankly, we could spend probably 10 podcasts discussing. So we can't get too deeply into it right now. I think just suffice it to say that Eckhart Tolle goes to great lengths to make the point that we are not our minds. We are separate and distinct from our minds, and we are not our thoughts. Um, and while we can control our thoughts to a certain extent, we can't completely control our thoughts. And that our job uh, as spiritual beings is to actually step away from our thoughts, to reflect light on our thoughts, uh, and to react to our thoughts in a positive, spiritual, constructive way. So this clip I'm about to play, we, uh, we're entering a seminar that he's giving about spirituality, uh, that he's giving, uh, explaining uh, the difference between mind and spirit and think back to Wilfred Anderson, what he was saying about mind and spirit. Uh, and we enter the clip where he, he's talking about thoughts specifically. And before we play the clip, let me just say, I, I hope you'll think of this, um, this clip and some of these concepts as articulated by Eckhart Tolle. I hope you'll think of them as additive, um, and as, um, compatible, um, with Mormonism, with Christianity, with Western thought, that it's that it's pointing to um, a, a higher, more universal truth. And, and think back to Kisa. Think back to what Kisa learned through her experience, and what we as LDS members are learning through our experience of practicing our religion. Anyways, on to Eckhart Tolle. Somebody sent me a sticker to put on the car. I haven't put it on my car yet. A very wise sticker. I don't know where it originated. It says, you don't need to believe every thought you think. (laughs) You are not the thought, you are the space for the thought. This is how I put it sometimes. You're familiar with that. And perhaps you, in yourself, you know it. You don't have to be in your thoughts, but you can be the space for your thoughts. That's also thoughts. That's more thoughts that say, I shouldn't be having these thoughts, there's something wrong with me. Or, and then you believe in those thoughts. <laughs> thoughts that judge other thoughts. That may sound familiar to some of you, and there's nothing personal in it, it's the human mind. <laughs> so you don't need to 
eliminate thoughts or to say, I should only have pure thoughts because I'm a spiritual person. Because by now I should have transcended all impure thoughts. Well, then you're in a dilemma because in this world of polarities, if you only want to have pure thoughts, you're creating the other polarity in the unseen. And sooner or later, the other polarity will come up from behind, creep up. And this has been done sometimes by Christians who try to practice the teachings of Christ without entering the state of consciousness out of which that comes. So they try to be pure and spiritual and good Christians and denied the other polarity, repressed it, and then suddenly they get overpowered by something deeply destructive and negative. So you have these occasions, you have a nice, wonderful person who always talks in spirituals, just so and spiritual. And before you know it, he's screaming at his wife or even hitting his wife. Where did that come from? And he can't even admit to himself that, that this is what's happening. And so if you push away certain thoughts that you, because they do not fit into your, the mental image of who you are as this or that, then they get to assume a life of their own. And before you know it, they invade your mind again, if only in your dreams, and suddenly you have dreadful nightmares. But during, during the day, you're such a spiritual person. And at night, you suddenly have dreadful nightmares. Monsters come, or you become a monster. Oh, my God. So the vital, a very vital practice then for everyone is stop identifying with thoughts. And that requires an alertness as you go about your life, especially when engaged with, in conversation with other people, but also in the continuous self-talk that goes on and on in most people's minds. So this is the practice then of being the space or the witness for your thoughts rather than being the thought. And you can practice with your opinions. Many thoughts are actual, most thoughts can, all thoughts could be called opinions, but there are certain things that are definitely clearly recognizable as opinions when you are talking to people Every day when you're having a discussion or talk with friends or colleagues or neighbors, so they will express their opinion, whatever it may be about, and you may express your opinion. And you can then observe whether or not there is self-identification with your opinion. And your opinion, of course, is a mental position, a, the position of the mind. Are you identified with a mental position? If you are, then you are cherishing opinions in the words of the Zen master, or you are clinging to ideas in the words of Lao Tse. And how do you know that? You know that when, as you discuss things, you become either defensive or aggressive in the expression of your opinion. Emotion flows into, and you get worked up in, huh, huh, why is that happening? Why are you becoming defensive or aggressive and of course you have to look inside yourself to see whether this is the case or not are you becoming defensive or aggressive you feel the influx of emotion and why is this happening because unconsciously 
you feel threatened by somebody who attacks or questions or contradicts your mental position. Again, this is Eckhart Tolle, who's a spiritual teacher. He's the author of The Power of Now, and he's the author of many other books. And it feels quite additive, in my view, to what Wilfred Anderson was trying to teach us. This distinction between the mind and the heart, the mind and the spirit, and that we are not our mind. Eckhart Tolle goes farther than Wilfred Anderson does, for sure, because he goes as far as to say we are not our mind. Our mind is just a separate tool. You know, we are not our thoughts. He goes on, you know, if, if you read his work, you know that he believes you can't even really totally control your thoughts. All you can do is observe your thoughts from deep within, which, but by the way, is a little bit different than how we teach our children in Sunday school. You know, we, we teach them, you got to control your mind. You know, that, that, that's a hard thing. How do you control your mind? Control your mind with your mind. And if you aren't able to control your mind with your mind, then you, then you won't be worthy to feel the spirit and then the spirit won't guide you. And then whatever your mind is telling you is, is not from the spirit. It's just your mind and, you know, it becomes this infinite loop. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you indulge in. You can't just go around going, going around indulging in every bad thought you have, right? I mean, you, you can't go around unable to control your your thoughts and your behavior and, and just be driven by your impulses. I mean, that's really what we're trying to say. But but it's not very rigorous to just say, control your mind, learn to control your mind. That That's not enough in my view. We need some more rigor. We need some better frameworks to teach people how the mind operates, the mind, the mind's operation versus the spirit's operation. I mean, I just don't think we have a very rigorous uh, and deep understanding of that. And I've read a lot of talks about this, but I've, you know, I've read a lot of talks and thought about this issue a lot about understanding the promptings of the Holy Ghost versus, versus understanding what your own mind is conjuring up. And they're all different and they're all muddy. But for some reason, we are afraid as a people, and that's a general statement, but we're afraid as a people to deeply consider and incorporate the teachings of people like Eckhart Tolle into our understanding of spirituality, Holy Ghost working with spirits. I'd even go as far as to say that there's a good portion of our hierarchy that explicitly advises against reading the teachings of people like Eckhart Tolle. I think there's a, 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 a significant portion of our hierarchy that would view Eckhart Tolle and, and his, uh, his writings as the teaching of the world, as unsanctioned because it has not been uttered by a general authority in general conference. But let, let's think back to Kisa for a moment. Let's think back to Kisa on the roadside in the center of the village holding her dead child, looking around at all the villagers, desperate for someone to make this not be, for someone to just, you know, desperate for something in agony. It's just not helpful at those times to say, hey, Kisa, your child is dead. You ought to bury him. Just get on with it. Sometimes it's just not helpful to hear, pray, keep the commandments, go to church, pay your tithing. Even though the villagers were all right, and when I mean right, I mean accurate in their assessment. And even though it's, it's good to keep the commandments and pray and read your scriptures, those are, those are good habits. Like I said before, you can't begrudge the villagers. I mean, they're right. And you can't begrudge people in Sunday school saying to us, control your mind. It's, it's important to control your mind and your behavior. But it, but it lacks rigor and it lacks 
uh, a different perspective that sometimes individuals need to, to solve a certain problem or to, or to obtain a certain skill. So in my view, Eckhart Tolle, Wilfred Anderson, these are the guys on the side of the road who see what's happening, see the reaction of all the villagers, and they suggest something a little bit different. I mean, they agree with all the villagers. The, ba- the baby is dead. They know the baby's dead, and they know that the Buddha at the edge of town doesn't have the answer, doesn't have a real cure. But they do, but they don't fight against the woman, and they don't browbeat her. They just say, you know, maybe what you're looking for is is beyond town. Maybe this guy can help you. And when the Buddha comes out and sees Kisa holding her dead child, her dead son, he doesn't say, oh, your son is dead. He says, go get me a handful of mustard seed. And then he gives her a few conditions. Now, he knew, of course, that Kisa's problem wasn't um, that her child was dead temporarily in her mind and that there was some sort of magical cure out there. And if she could just find it, she'd uh, everything would be great. He knew that her problem was much deeper, which was which was grappling with, understanding, and then internalizing the profound meaning of her experience, her experience with death. And he taught her and showed her and enabled her to realize that she is not the first person to experience the death of a loved one, nor is she the per- first person to feel the death, the, the, the pain of the death of a loved one. He also knew that he couldn't just say that to her. You know, and, and the villagers, in spite of all my criticism of them, I mean, they were right too. They, they couldn't just say, hey, Kisa, get over it. We've all, we've all experienced death. Come on now. You know, Buddha couldn't say that to her. Oh, th- th- this is great for you because now you're going to be really empathic and, you know, sorry your son's dead, but, you know, his life continues on in the next fear and just get over it. And, you know, you can't just, you can't just glibly say that to people. They, you know, and so the, the Buddha very compassionately pointed her to the experience. You know, experience is a tricky thing. You know, we can imagine a Kisa up in heaven before she was born and there's some avuncular guy with a beard and a white robe and he says, well, you know, you're going to go down to this earth and you're, you're going to have all this great experience and you're going to have this son and he's going to die and that's going to really teach you a lot of things too and it's going to change you as a person and then you're going to return to the village and you're going to be a much deeper, much wiser person full of glory. And does this sound familiar to anybody? You know, there, there's a reason we don't just sit in the classroom in the pre-existence. We come down here and we have these experiences. And, and, and we don't just, you know, again, we talk about experience, but, but again, you know, like controlling your mind or reading the scriptures, I mean, it just lacks rigor. But we see through this simple parable, Kisa evolved from, from an innocent, naive mother to someone with a great depth of experience. And we also learn that it came through her pain and through her suffering and her misery. And the Buddha knew this. The Buddha knew that, that this was the cure that Kisa really needed. You know, and she, she didn't even know that she needed it. She was trying to solve a different problem. She was trying to cure her son. And I think that's what is so brilliant about the lone villager. I think that's what's so brilliant about people like Wilfred Anderson, people like Eckhart Tolle, is they're pointing us in a direction that we need to go to teach us something that we need to, to, to learn. Even though in our checklist-dominated world, our task-oriented world, we don't think that that's the problem we're trying to solve. We, 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 in fact, we don't even know we have the problem, much less trying to solve it. Most of the world is more like the villagers. Your baby's dead. Your child's dead. Bury the child. Move on. Be done with it. Rejoin the village. Be happy. 
I mean, th- this is what we hear a-, a lot. And it's not just our church. I mean, you hear this at work. You hear this inside marriages, inside families. You hear parents saying it to kids. I mean, th- this is this is a pretty common refrain. I had, I had a buddy, <laughs> this is a little digression, but I had a buddy who got divorced five years ago. I mean, he was absolutely devastated. You know, he was living in a basement. Um, he could barely afford child support. Um, his his in-laws were very prominent people in the local ward, and their daughter was the had lived there her whole life, and she was the ward superstar. And so nobody nobody was empathetic with him, even though he really had done nothing. I mean, he was he was uh, really a terrific guy. I don't you know I don't want, I don't know all the details of the divorce, but he he was worthy. He was a good guy. He was. She left him, and he was really devastated. And every time he'd see his mother-in-law at church, and he avoided her, believe me, but every time he'd see her, she would say, oh, just get over it. Just get over it. <laughs> yeah, just get over it. Now, look, I know that not every situation in life is is some transcendental, experiential, uh, logarithmic growth experience, okay? I mean, I, I, I get that. And I know that sometimes, you know, we're lazy and we're just, you know, unwilling to face facts and we need someone to say, uh, you know, move forward, stop being, stop being pathetic and start working. I mean, I, we need to hear that sometimes, but, but, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we really need to hear something else. Sometimes we need help to see what's going on from a different perspective. And this enables us to internalize the lessons of experience and to see which way our experiences are pointing us. Sometimes we need someone to say to us, look, put your lists down, turn your mind off for just a second, and deep within you there's a spirit. And it's only this spirit that can hear this music. And if you listen to the music, oh, you know, life's a lot better and a lot more enjoyable. So, you know, we need people to, we need people to say that to us too. We need to be shown sometimes that life is a dance and that a dance is way more fun than just grim duty than just one more job on the old to-do list well i want to conclude again by thanking bill real for allowing me to guest host this podcast it's been a pleasure bill you're terrific and i hope that we'll have more opportunities to talk again soon until next time